Cheers. Cheers. Love to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That margarita is good on a mm. Friday afternoon. Yes. Can't go wrong with tequila. All right. Today I'm drinking tequila with Mary Rodriguez, strategic delivery planner for Fortune 500 company for the past 20 years. Mm-hmm. Single mom of two, photographer by hobby, also my mama. <laughs> All right, Mary, welcome. Thanks. It's so fun sitting here with you. Are you nervous? I am very nervous. I'm actually sweating. I won't lie. You don't think that's the tequila, though? It could be the tequila or my fleece line leggings. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, PSA, if you haven't tried fleece lined leggings, they're lovely. Do you want to give a shout out to where you bought them so I can get a sponsor? <laughs> I think they're from Walmart. Oh, good. Walmart, if you're listening. Also, George Clooney. <laughs> Casa Amigos, we're drinking your tequila. Yes. I would really like a tequila sponsor, actually. I saw him on the David Letterman, like, after hours thing. Mm-hmm. That's where I realized or learned that he's part owner in that. So do you drink tequila often? As often as I can. I do like tequila. It's a natural probiotic. It's very important. <laughs> Who taught you that? Papa Jose. <laughs> your dad's your grandpa. When we were in Mexico, I was very sick. and My dad's dad. Yep. And we were traveling from where their house was to take him to the ocean for the first time, even though they lived in Mexico their whole life. So, but I was very sick on the way back. And so um, we stopped in the mountains and he was gone for a while. And he came back with this gallon Quaker State motor oil jug. And um, he had known where there was someone who makes, I don't know, mezcal or tequila. Um, Probably mezcal. Yeah, and so it was homemade. It was amazing. So he gave me a little bit, and I wasn't sick. The rest of the trip, I felt better. Really? Yeah. And you drank it in the back of a pickup truck driving through the mountains in Mexico, right? Yeah, I was like the only white person. People would stop and stare at me. (laughs) I don't think they'd seen many white people. And then the fact that I was in a tank top and shorts was not typical. It was a good trip. So that was how many years ago? You were like a year and a half or two, not quite two. But not your first trip to Mexico, right? No, I don't think that was my first trip. No. So I don't think it was. I have to think about it now. I don't think it was. Yeah, I think that was my second one. I think one was before you were born and then one was when you were two, going on two. Okay, so when did you start working at your Fortune 500 company? I started working for this company about 24 years ago. I was a contractor for the first year, but permanent my permanent anniversary is this summer, so it'll be 23 years. So term. just a few years after your Mexico trip. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I actually started working for this company. I took this job permanently when I knew I was getting divorced. So Which was? 1995. 23 years ago this yeah. summer. Yeah. So you went on permanently when you knew you were getting divorced? Yes. I was a contractor before that, doing graphic arts and um, doing some freelance with them. But when I knew I was getting divorced, I needed to have a dedicated income and benefits. So So when you went on full-time, what was your role? My role was a seminar advisor. It was like in the delivery of Mm -hmm. corporate training. So... My company is huge. There's currently almost a half a million employees worldwide. Um, and we've won a lot of awards for training. Like it's not like training you most people would think of. It's very high end, like five days immersion. We hire retired CEOs to play our clients. So when you say training, you mean like corporate training, right? So mm-hmm. you're training people within the company to advance to the next level in the company. Exactly. Yes. And immersion, you mean like they're on site for five days. You don't just watch like 40 hours worth of training videos. Right. They're on site. They're doing like scenarios, fake client meetings that don't feel fake because when you're sitting and getting grilled by a retired CEO, they know their business. It's not like an actor. So my company is very intentional with the training. So when I started, I was delivering. I was like entry level doing delivery, logistics, that type of thing. So when you started and you were a newly single mom, 
with two mm-hmm. little brats. I don't know who they would be, but <laughs> you guys are great. You guys are adorable. I was. <laughs> you were. Eddie was peeing on bathroom walls at that stage. <laughs> oh, jeez, Edward. <laughs> but is that where you envisioned yourself in your career? Well, like, let's step back for a second. So okay. you were how old when you went full time? I was just. I had just turned thirty. Okay, so you're my age now. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so at the right. age of 30 with two mm-hmm. young kids, an 8-year-old and a 4-year-old in a divorce, is that where you thought you'd be at that time in your career? Oh, never. Like, I didn't think I'd be in that place any time in my life. Like, I, you know, I just thought married forever. And, and I was doing graphic arts. I was doing creative artwork. Like, I was... And then when you need to think about a steady paycheck and benefits and you have to think differently about fulfillment. We talked a little bit about this. Fulfillment mm-hmm. was being able to feed my children and pay the mortgage. So um, the partner I, the partner who I was on his training, he didn't like that there was a contractor. He didn't like that mm. like um, stigma. So he is the one that said, love your work, but this needs to be a permanent role. So they had to post it, and then a lot of people applied. I just thankfully got the position. What were the requirements for the role? Was it an Um, educational requirement? Yeah, with my company, um, it is a minimum of a bachelor's, preferably a master's, which is one thing that freaked me out a little bit. I've taken some college classes, like I took certificate classes. associates, right? I didn't even have an associate's. I'm close. It's on my bucket list to go back. But it was a graphic arts certificate program mm. that I had taken to. I worked for AT&T for 10 years. And then when they broke up Ma Bell back in the day, I got laid off along with hundreds of people. So I went back to school in my few months of not working over the past 30-some years. I went back to school so I could get a better job. Mm-hmm. But it was graphic arts. That's what I was interested in. And that's what I was contracting in for Accenture. And then they needed help with delivery. So it was kind of like, can you do your graphic arts and help us here? And then it morphed into, we need you full-time over here. It's going well. And then the partner saying, can't have a contractor. You need to post this and get a perm person in. And you were already doing the job. So it just made sense. It just made sense. It was a competitive it was a competitive interview process, but it, it was the right answer. And I needed a full-time job, so I was hungry and I was determined. So what do you think? So do you think not having a degree set you back? It was definitely a conversation point, and I, it took me a long time. Like, I would say now 20-some years, I'm finally comfortable and being honest. Like, for all those years when I didn't do a LinkedIn profile, because all my peers and my employers and my bosses are on LinkedIn and it would have been obvious when I didn't list my alma mater. Mm. So I kept that very quiet and it was a conversation point in the interview, but thankfully the recruiter recognized that the job performance and the experience outweighed it. So what do you think, so your job performance and your Mm. experience, but how long had you been in the role? At that point, I'd been, I contracted with the company about a year and a half, but full-time in that role, probably six months. Okay, so months. that's not very long in yeah. the, a role, right, right, to have a lot of experience. Yeah. So aside from, like, the job experience with that manager personally mm-hmm. and your work ethic, like, what personal characteristics do you mm-hmm. think that you possess that set you apart Mm, where I, your degree yeah. wasn't a, a problem for you. I think part of it was that I had 10 years with AT&T in multiple different roles. Part of it was my communication style, my negotiation, my willingness to be, um, to ask hard questions mm-hmm. and to take on work. And um, I think work through complex problems, which is something that somebody brand new right out of college might not have those characteristics yet. They need to develop them and get like their confidence. Like real work experience. Right. And the confidence that comes with it, with having a history of experience to pull from when things come up. 
Okay, so now that you've been doing it for 20 years, mm -hmm. I really like salt on margarita. <laughs> you have to have salt or it's no good. So now that you've been in this role for 20 years and you have time to reflect mm -hmm. and you're at a pretty high point, right? You've made it to a manager position. Mm -hmm. So what would you say is one of your biggest failures to date? Oh, wow. Because I think it's easy to talk about the successes. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to do that, but I think it's also equally as important, especially from my perspective as someone who's just starting out in my, like I'm paving the way in my own career mm -hmm. at the moment. It's important to talk about the failures. Because like I'm in chapter one, maybe two, maybe two now. Yes, I think so a few things. One, in the 20 some years, I've been in multiple roles. Like I intentionally would seek out different roles in different parts of the organization. Why would you do that? Because I wanted to grow my skills and I wanted to contribute in a different way so I didn't get stagnant. Um, it's important to me not to be pigeonholed into only being able to do one type of thing for one type of client. Um, so I would say... One of my, and I'll call them growth areas, because I think that's what a failure is. A failure is being willing to take a risk and work outside your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. um, but then it's all about what do you learn from it? Or did you? If you don't learn from it, then you're kind of wasting your time. Mm -hmm. um, one area I feel like I've grown a lot and I'm still trying to grow is my team management. I feel like being a single mom... I don't know. You is would... team management? Well, it is team management because you're outnumbered at that point, right? It's, you know, two to one with two kids. But um, I feel like, I don't know, you and Eddie could say I was probably kind of a dictator, but it's, I feel like I've gotten a little softer in listening to whether it's my kids or my team mm -hmm. and trying to step back and, and not take every situation at once and not be a driver. So when I first became a team lead. Can we pause for a second? By not being a driver, you mean not controlling every aspect of the situation? Right. And being so deadline focused, uh, like okay. deadline focused, driven, and just power through to get there. Because sometimes with my company, it, they, it's, it's really aggressive deadlines and really high demands. Like mm -hmm. sometimes we're working on $12 million training events. Like it's big, you know. So I think pausing to make sure I'm bringing everybody along the journey with me and pausing to understand where people are struggling and why. Mm -hmm. um, that's something I feel like I've grown a lot over the years and I've managed different teams now. And I'm on a new team. I took a new role like six months ago, which is a brand new team, which has gone through a lot of turnover and struggle. And I realized they're just in a really fragile place. Like they just came out of an abusive relationship? Very much so. Because that happens at work. People don't realize that, but Ooh, you can yeah. have the same reaction. Yes. I let my, in my new role, I let my manager know or my, my, yeah. She's like my senior manager, but I let her know that I feel like my peers in this new role have PTSD because we're in the middle of a reorg or we've gone through a reorg and they were in this role through that journey and they were the ones really taking the brunt of all the changes and the pressures and between the client and the teams. And yeah, I saw some a cool podcast and some videos and I told her, I think this is what our team's going through. And here's some suggestions mm -hmm. I have. And thankfully, she was super receptive. I found other people were afraid to tell her that. So two questions. Mm -hmm. Number one, what have you implemented with your team once mm -hmm. you found figured out that they were kind of like struggling from their past relationship with mm -hmm. their manager? Now you're the new manager. So what have you done? Some of the things that I've done, we had, like this week, we did a filter-free meeting. And one of my... So you can say fuck? <laughs> you can. Yeah. It, it was filter... I just had to say it once. <laughs> it was filter-free and agenda-free. So, and we actually took a walk because only people in our office were able to come. Those who work remote 
just had other conflicts. And so it was just ask whatever is on your mind. You know, this it's no judgment and just say what's on your mind. That's been my biggest struggle with this team. The last team that I managed was for five years and they were super candid. Because they trusted you. After five years. Yeah, part of it was trust. Part of it was personality that, you know, but part of it was leadership. And um, the person that I replaced on this team was amazing in many ways. We are just so very different in our management style, our hierarchy, and um, just our people management approach. So I found they were very um, heads down to keep your mouth shut, which is just so different from how I like to manage our team. So. Well, and it's different from how you are, right? Yeah. You lead by example. Yeah. And I, so you speak up when you need to. Right. I feel like tenacity is something I've developed. When I first started with, or when I was new with my company, I had to go to assertiveness training. <laughs> I know, shocking, right? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, because I was too, like, inhibited. I didn't push back. I didn't challenge my leaders. I... I was that person who just shut up and got your work done. Just keep your head down. And so I had to go to assertiveness training. And we kind of joke with some of the people I knew way back then that, oh, shit, they didn't know what they were creating. Like making me go to that training helped me realize I have a voice and it's I need to, I need to express it. So back then, why do you think that was? Was it because you're insecure? Is it because you were just like you were just happy to have the job and have a paycheck to – pay the bills that was a lot of it were you afraid to get fired I was totally afraid to get fired I was in survival mode like I was paying for my groceries on my credit card like I I grew a massive amount of debt which you're out of now now I'm out that was a lot of hard work but yeah I was broke I was scared Mm -hmm. um and I'm in this environment working with people with their masters and their PhDs and I don't even have an associate. I have some graphic arts class. And I went to graduation because I graduated with honors, but it was a certificate program. It wasn't even an associate's. Mm, I oh. didn't even know that. Oh, my gosh. My parents were so proud. You, the pictures make it look like I got I know, my I PhD. You got, I know. <laughs> That's what I mean. I didn't think you had a PhD, but I thought you had an associate's. Mm-mm. It was it was a graphic art certificate program, but I graduated with honors. So it's about applying yourself where you are. And and I had two little kids. So, you know, it's about that. And I was doing that to get a better job. I could have went and worked at Target or Walmart, but that wasn't my end goal. Why not? Because I wanted something better for my family and for me. Like I had bigger vision and I want like things were important to me. Travel was important. And I knew that I needed to focus to have a bigger end goal and security for my family. So when you have a goal as big as that, like how do you buckle down and just focus on that? I guess when you have kids, there's a little bit different, like you have a tunnel vision a little bit bit. because you have like a constant reminder, but like, I don't have kids Mm -hmm. and I live, spoiler alert, in my mother's house. (laughs) Now everybody knows. All my clients, anyone who thought they were going to date me, it's out there world. Yeah, anybody who thought they were going to date me, my daughter still lives with me. (laughs) Great. Spoiler alert. (sighs) Okay, redirecting. Yeah, we're good roommates, so let's start from there. Yeah, let's just leave the roommates out of this conversation. Okay, but when you have such big, okay, well, first of all, how do you have such big goals when you grew up so poor, mm-hmm. and a mom is the youngest of seven, and grandpa was a successful businessman, but he was all self-taught, self-made, right. also creative. Yeah, he definitely had a creative side, and grandma, I feel like, I feel like I didn't enjoy it, obviously, growing up, you know, wearing hand-me-downs for my sisters who were nine and 11 years older like the styles had not come back around yet (laughs) and I was wearing their hand-me-downs it wasn't a good thing but um what I appreciate is one they were both hardworking, Mm -hmm. and so I feel like we've all learned that um and 
they they lived like they were poor even when they weren't. Like when Grandpa worked his way all the way up from wearing cardboard in his shoes because he, they didn't have shoes. In West Virginia. In the hills of West Virginia. and A literal hillbilly. Literal. Yeah. And like he used to, people would pay him a nickel to stand in when they were going to get beat up by a bully. Like, and he would bring his lunches home, his subsidized lunches. He would bring them home to chip in for dinner. So when somebody grows up like that and works his way up to an executive, the lessons that... An executive at Motorola, or for the Illinois Tollway. Illinois Tollway, yeah. So he, he worked with Motorola mm-hmm. to help pioneer their... Microwave towers mm-hmm. and how they manage um, police radios, police support... He was the head of telecommunications and data processing. Here in Illinois. Yep, here in Illinois. And he was with them for over 30 years. Um, but he worked his way from little job to little job. And he he was insightful enough to get his family out of the hills when all the industry started dying around them. The hills in West Virginia. Yeah, and Ohio. He lived on the riverfront in Ohio for a while. So, um, But I feel like that example of live within your means... You know, don't rack up debt and then save for the things you want. Like, we still did vacations. They weren't exciting. It might have been Wisconsin Dells. I will never go back to Wisconsin Dells. <laughs> Ever. Everybody but you had a great time. It's because of who came with us the one time. You're scarred forever, apparently. But Yeah, but they're just, like, weird. It's Wisconsin. Yeah, but if it's that or nothing, right? Like, we did go-karts. We did roller coasters. We did water parks. Like... We did, We had fun within my budget. Mm-hmm. Yes. Know? Or we went to California and stayed with my sister so that we could go to a different beach every day. Like, we found ways to travel within my means, mm-hmm. but still get you guys out of town for a while. So how did you budget then? Like, I use my Google Drive's Excel sheet. Well, it's called a Google sheet. Mm-hmm. How do you, Like, that's what I use. It's all online. Everything I use to budget is online. My online banking, my Excel sheet. So... The how did you budget? I had none of that because even at work we had desktops like that was before laptops. So you literally were in the office till you were done at night. But it was literally Grandma taught me how to balance my checkbook like you know on the back of your printed statements yeah. <laughs> and just making sure I was tracking well. Like if I didn't have money, I didn't spend it. Like mm-hmm. the credit card debt that I racked up was literally groceries or the transmission going out. It was necessity, necessity, no clothes. Like our shopping was typically garage sales or thrift for, stores. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just managing within your means and you don't, you don't splurge when you can't. So how do you reconcile that with today's society then? I feel like I'm still kind of old school as far as budgeting or living within your means. Both. I think they go hand in hand. I think budgeting now I'm in a place where I like I know my bills. I know what I can afford. So I haven't put as much rigor. I did take Financial Peace University a couple years ago. and That's Dave Ramsey's. Dave Ramsey. That was super helpful for me at the time. Um but I think, I think people learning how to live within your means and don't charge things if you can't afford it. And 0% financing, it's a ploy. Like, if you can't afford it, you can't afford it. So I read a blog the other day that, maybe this morning actually, this Seth Godin, the marketing guy, mm-hmm. um, and he was talking about sacrifice and how in today's world we're so overindulgent we don't even understand the sacrifice because yeah. it's so common for everyone to rack up debt and to it's so easy for you to just like click buy on Amazon yes. that you don't even like think about it. Yeah. And I wanted to buy some hair products today and a salt lamp yesterday. Okay, yeah, I'm still going to buy that. <laughs> <laughs> I can afford it. Okay, as long as you can afford it. <laughs> Which is not what you say when you're out in public to your children. <laughs> I know I'm learning that. That's a lesson learned for me. Yes. Don't when your child, your adult child says they're going to pay for something, don't go, are you sure you can afford it? In front of the person who's taking the order. Especially if it's like a cute cashier or a handsome man. Yeah. Okay. Now, lesson learned. So how do you, well, you don't really necessarily need to do that anymore. Not so diligently. But like, what advice do you have for people out there that should be doing that? I would say, and 
Dave Ramsey, the one thing, one of the many things that I liked about his training was where you have envelopes for your cash. Mm-hmm. I feel like in today's society where it is easy to click and buy stuff without thinking or swipe your credit card and you don't really think about it. Mm-hmm. He has the envelope system where when you get your paycheck, you literally get the cash and you put it in envelopes based on hair products, like you mentioned, or entertainment. And then literally when you go to buy something, when you pull out cash, you really think about what mm-hmm. you're spending. So if that if I have to use cash, then I have to go to the store. I don't really like yeah. going to the store. That's like a whole new thing now with the e-commerce. Like it's really changed. I think it makes budgeting so much more challenging. Because you can easily buy online. Yeah, I think you have to be super aware of your budget and you just have to be disciplined and be aware of what are your end goals. What are your yeah. bigger goals? Because if it's the hair products or the new jeans or martinis, whatever it is, if you're paying attention that, all right, that's 20 bucks or 50 bucks, that's not going on my trip to London. Mm. Like if you're, if you actually set up an account to save for those bigger goals, then you're more, it's more apparent to you when you're putting money on something else versus putting it toward that big goal. Oh, that's interesting to think about it like that. Like if you're saving for a trip, rather than adding to it, you're subtracting from it. Right. Each time you splurge, you spend outside of your right allotted budget. And if you want to take that trip in a year, well, could you go in eight months if you cut out the other stuff? Or if you keep spending on all these other little things, are you not going to be able to go for a year and a half or put yourself in debt to go? Yeah. Okay, so now you're debt free. Mm-hmm. But what was something you saved for that you really saved for? Oh, probably a car. All of, I never in my life had a new, well, once in my life I had a new car, but it was a Ford Escort that was like, just like, I don't even think I had power windows. And, but for a decent car, I'd always. A Ford Escort is like a two door hatchback. Yeah. So that was back in the day and grandpa helped me buy that. But as an adult. He helped you financially? He only, he helped me negotiate the loan and get the loan, but Mm -hmm. then I paid for everything. Um, because my gremlin. <laughs> you need to explain what that is because no one knows. That's like a character on Goonies. Nobody should know. My gremlin, when I was 16, my my dad would help you get a car that you could afford, which for me at 16 was basically nothing. So if you Google gremlin, it's like a square box on wheels. Mine was brown. Ew. Grandpa called it shit knuckle brown. <laughs> And it had a stick shift on the floor like a truck. No power steering. No power windows. Oh, wait, wait. Like. No AC. I only know what no power. <laughs> and no power steering is, I think, because I learned to drive on dad's um, red blazer. <laughs> and I think the steering had gone out. So it was like, I don't even know how to explain it. Like, it's hard. It's like a bicep workout. Yeah. Imagine just turning a. I don't know how much cars weigh. One ton, one ton hunk of metal by yourself. (laughs) Like, that should be a workout in the gym. And no air conditioning. So I think Grandpa got that car for me so I would always be single. Because you're, (laughs) (laughs) you're like, sweaty and you're working hard and your friends are just enjoying the eight-track music. But you're working very hard between the stick shift and the no power steering and no air. It was horrid. It was horrible. But you could afford it? Yeah. Did you have a monthly payment? Um, No, that one was like saved up babysitting money. So actually, that's probably where that started. And then when that finally went out a couple years later, I was working at Denny's in Westmont. And um, I was shifting the gremlin with a screwdriver at that (laughs) point. because What? Yeah, the clutch had gone out. And then they had to like jimmy rig it with a long screwdriver. But like what kind of screwdriver can you apply the pressure that you need to shift a car? I didn't ask questions. I just got Who jimmy rigged it? Grandpa and (laughs) one of my brothers. I don't remember who at the time. Probably Don. Tom. Don or Tom. Well, Don was probably here. Yeah. So it was probably Don. So, so any, so... My to your question about my first real spend was like eight years ago, so I was very much into my adult years. My kids getting older, and I finally 
got I got a 2008 CRV. I was so excited for that. Eight years ago. Yeah, it's a 2008. So ten years ago. Ten years ago. <gasps> ten years ago. So yeah. I was 20. Yeah, and in my house, literally, when you look around our house, I have like one new appliance. In mm-hmm. the 30 years we've lived here, I have a new stove. And then our living room set from when Eddie was 12. Like, I just still am applying those principles of don't spend money where you don't need to. Like, now I can splurge when I want to. Mm-hmm. But I'm trying to save for a three-month leave from work. And so that's a real goal for me. Okay, so put it to put it in perspective, you've been divorced for almost 23 years. Mm-hmm. And you had your first real splurge and expenditure 10 years ago. So it took you 13 years yeah. to get out of debt and get to a comfortable financial position to where you felt like you could afford to have a splurge like that. Yeah, to buy a nice car. Like what then I considered a nice car. Yeah, it was just brand new. Yeah, it wasn't it was, used. Right, brand new. And it was, yeah, it was a Honda and it had a sunroof and a great stereo. And yeah. But in the meantime, like you went to, came to visit me in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Eddie came to, I went to Ireland for a semester. Right. You've gone to Mexico? I've gone to, yeah, I've gone to Before Me- you bought that car, what are your, what are your splurges? Mostly trips? Mostly trips. Yeah, we've been to, what, Boston, Nashville, Florida. Since then. Yeah, since the car. No, I'm talking before the car. Probably more domestic, like California a few times. I'm sure I went to Mexico. Yeah, it was more domestic trips. Like, our trip to Ireland was, Mm -hmm. what, 2009? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess around that point, I was really feeling like I had my legs under me. Like, things... Around what point? Around when I bought that car. Oh, So, like, okay. 2008. So, what does that mean for you to have your legs under you financially? For me now, like, my goal has been to pay off the house. So, the house is paid off. Like, cheers. Cheers. Yay. Yay. And to um, be saving for a kitchen remodel. Like, you guys in Radioland, I have, I don't even have a Radioland? <laughs> All right, that makes me sound old. I don't even have a dishwasher. Like, you know, to me that was something I wanted, but not a necessity. So so we'll do the kitchen reno at some point soon. But, um, yeah, it was all about what my priorities were. So what are your priorities now? Now. Get your daughter out of the house. <laughs> number one, yes. <laughs> Well, actually, I want my daughter to stay long enough to, to project manage my kitchen reno so I can go live by the beach. That's with... fine, but I'm not going to be micromanaged by you no. to project manage. That's why we have to align our goals. Like if my goal to live by the beach for a month, if that will align with you project manage, project managing the kitchen renovation while mm-hmm. I'm gone, that would be goodness for everybody. Yeah, I know some people buy a beach. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we need to, we'll talk more about that. And mm-hmm. see. They probably need a babysitter. Oh, that'd be good. I like little kids. She's cute. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there will be another one. There's a lot of them over there. Yeah, I was thinking that. Another one coming soon, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so, yes. So my current goals are, one, the kitchen renovation. Um, I mentioned the three-month leave. My company, I just learned not too long ago you can do up to three months uh, every so many years and it's unpaid though Mm -hmm. so I've been saving for that and planning for that Um, when I applied for this promotion in September it was with the understanding I was supposed to be on a on a three-month leave right now this spring but when I applied for this promotion it was with an agreement that I Mm. would pause on that I'm not giving up on that I'll pause on it so so that's a big goal for me now. So where are you going to go? I don't know. I know that I want to do, so three months, I want to do one month home. I just want to get stuff done, mm-hmm. chill out, like enjoy my own house. And then one month international and then one month domestic travel. And I know that I want to incorporate some volunteerism in there. Not sure exactly what that might look like. Hmm. 
Yeah, a lot of options. Yeah, so that that's what I want to do. How much vacation time do you get at your job? I get six weeks a year paid time off. So that includes sick time and vacation. What can you roll over? You can roll over 240 hours every year, which is four, six weeks, six times four. I know, Eight too, weeks. too much to kill. No, I, I think know. it's six weeks. Um, Wait, let's actually do the math. 40 times six, right? 240. It's 40. Yeah, it's six weeks. Um, which is so sad. Almost every year for the 20 year, 20 plus years I've been there, I've carried over almost Why? 200. Because when my company, there are really high demands and high pressures and big deadlines. And so a lot of times you're working so many hours, vacation gets put on hold. That's one thing I'm working really hard on this year is finding balance, Mm -hmm. pushing back, finding like priorities and managing my own team. Now actually being the manager versus the team lead. I'm able to prioritize differently and I'm able to have ownership with my client Mm. where before ownership. Yeah. Before I was reporting up to a manager that owned the client relationship, I influenced it, but I didn't own it. Now I own it. And so I feel like for a lot of people, that'd be intimidating to have the full ownership of that. Like they don't want the responsibility of that. Mm -hmm people shy away from those things they'd rather just kind of like hide underneath it yeah I I agree with you I think people do and honestly like a year ago I chose not to apply for this position it was a brand new role and we were going through a reorg and I knew it was going to be an ugly year Mm -hmm. and we were going through some personal things with my folks health declining and it was not a season for me that I was willing Mm -hmm. to dedicate the my primary efforts to that it wasn't that wasn't the season for me so then fast forward another year and when I heard of somebody in this role retiring I did a lot of self-reflection like do I want this can I do this can I do it well um and I took a truly human course which was actually instrumental in my decision making it made me really think about um, the negative stories I was telling myself. Mm, that little voice, Eddie and I were talking about that. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That little voice is big. Mm-hmm. And it was like squashing down my confidence on whether I could do this. Mm-hmm. And there's a really good activity in that course where you do a paradigm shift and you rewrite that story. And I came out of that course like, damn, I'm applying. I can do this. I can absolutely do this. And then I rocked it. I rocked the interview process. They said I won it hands down. How did you, what activities did you do to combat that voice? It was all about shifting. Like some of the things when they have you write down, like what is top of mind? What are you struggling with? And it was, it was like, I'm not strategic. Like my role is strategic delivery planner, but I'm an analytical. I'm, Mm. you know, I'm a numbers person, a detail person. And so the voice in my head was like, you can't be strategic. Like, that's just not oh, your strong suit. Mm-hmm. Um, you you don't even have a degree. How would you... That's still in your head at this point? A little bit, because the new client, I probably might shouldn't say this out loud, but her... You can have your disclaimer now. Okay, my disclaimer, anything I say, if you understand who I work for, is my opinion has nothing to do with my company's opinion. But my new client, her grandfather won the Nobel Prize in Physics. That's my client. And she is smart like her grandpa, like crazy smart. But so, in all the ways? Or what What kind of smart is she? She is... Because everyone's different. Yeah. She is super analytical, super detailed, brain like a computer. But I feel like she can read through the lines, like read, read between the lines like nobody I've ever met. So, Like, what do you mean? Like, when you're talking to her or when she's analyzing numbers? I think both, which is the scary part. Like, I thought she was just numbers smart. But no, when you're trying to explain why something is why it is or why we have capacity for this or why, I feel like she gets to a place of how decisions were made, who made the decisions. Hmm. She's really smart. So... I knew that was going to be my client. So that was intimidating to me. So my story was like, I can't, 
I can't go toe-to-toe with her. Mm. I don't have it. Um, But when I stepped back and thought about it and thought about how a very good, a good influencer on me is someone who's a client of yours. Um, Mm -hmm. And I forget how she worded it. Strategy, strategy is something like experience plus people skills or something. I forget how she broke it down. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And so that helped me to see that I don't have to have all this strategic experience, but if I listen well, and if I can pull back from the details, I can still, I can still participate in good conversations and help drive strategy. Yeah, strategy, no matter the industry, is Mm -hmm. just understanding the details and then being able to see the big picture. Being able to see the forest between the trees. Yeah, and I convinced myself I couldn't. I was so detailed, and that's not true. Well, you are very detailed, but I I know, I mean, you can see big picture, too. Yeah. But I feel like a lot of people are, or maybe they just think they're one or the other. Like, Mm -hmm. they're strong, you're either, like detail oriented or big picture but you can't be one without the other right right I think you've got a bit of both it's just I think sometimes it's just allowing yourself the thinking time yeah and that's hard when we're inundated with information all day long yes and like pings and emails and social media like you have to really step outside of that in order to get quiet time to think Yes, and I think that it's good timing in my company because there's a program that our very top executive leadership are, I don't know, they've introduced, which is about how do you bring your whole self and your best self. It's about your body, your heart, your mind, and your soul, and which is so counterintuitive. It's called Truly Human, right? It is called Truly Human, and that's not our culture. But they put out some really great videos about... Not your culture at the company? Right. What's the culture? Um, Typical, like, A personality, get work done, deadline driven. Mm. Typical corporate culture. Typical. Yes. Yes. High stress, high demand, meet the client needs. And so for them to roll this out, there was a lot of skepticism. Mm -hmm. But I got to go to the training. And I, when I interviewed for this new role, it was a big part of my role is that I, in my interviews, I said, if I get this role, I want you to allow me to champion this. Like we need it. And thankfully my leadership agreed and I've able, I formed uh, this little team. We're called truly human champions. And I have representation across all of our regions. What does that mean? It means, so we have people from India, China, Manila, North America, Japan, so all through APAC and North America and Europe. Um, And what we do, we meet twice a month and we talk about how can we help people understand what the concepts are and how they can apply them. And it's okay. Mm -hmm. So we've started, and I've been leading calls with different teams to talk about your worst days, your best days. How do we get more of your good days? How do we take actions as a team to get you there? And how do you individually take actions Mm -hmm. that will help you get more of your best self? So in starting this program, you've had to pretty much establish a brand, right? This is a new thing. Mm -hmm. So how have you gone about doing that? Well, we, so since the whole company started the program, but within our division, um, we have started taglining everything that we do. Like we have a circle. Like I don't know if that's a common it's a social media pa- platform for your company, right? It's like Facebook for your company. Yes, yes. And so every time we create a new challenge in there, we tagline it. Brought to you by your truly human champions. Does tagline it mean hashtag? Yeah, like hashtag, and we sign it. We're not, I'm not as high techy, but we sign. What does sign it mean? We like literally our post. We end our post with "brought to you by." Like that's oh, like our tagline. You all do that? Yeah, in my in this little team, this champions team. So you use the hashtag mm-hmm. "truly human," mm-hmm. and then you say "brought to you by." You're truly. So you guys are branding every single person who's posting this. Is that's how you're branding it? The people that are on the champions team, and then we tag people who are either in our team and across teams to bring them into the conversation. So how did you guys agree on the hashtag and the to sign everything? 
We're not as consistent on the hashtag, so we're working on that mm-hmm. for our next challenge. Um, the idea for how we sign everything just came up in one of our team meetings. Like, how do we distinguish the efforts that we're making so that people will know that it's not just one it's not just one person, which would mm-hmm. still be fine, but that we collectively are trying to create this movement in our organization. And it's working. It's working. Like our most current initiative is called Your Truly Human Slide. And you literally put a picture of yourself and then you share a little bit about how you find your best self through your body, your heart, your mind, and your soul. And we've had so many posted. Did you create the slide? I saw it in a I saw it in a video on our Truly Human. We have like a Truly Human site. Mm Mm-hmm. And I try to go out there at least once a week and see what podcasts are posted, what learning I can do. And I saw that a team in the Philippines, it was a video, but they included the slide. So I did a screenshot and I brought it to my next Truly Humans Champion meeting. And I was like, you guys, let's try this. What if we create a template? So somebody Mm -hmm. on my team had time. She created a template for us from the slide that I screenshot. And then... Yeah, we released it. We all posted as examples, and then um, we had good. We had some good traction, but of the two hundred people in our organization, the truly human organization. No, my organization within the company. The, okay. So we were only seeing probably I don't know thirty percent. Mm-hmm. So I've started reaching out to all of our leaders to say, "Will you please create your slide and post it?" People are watching to see if you're participating because of the movement should be bottom up and top down. So what do you think the benefit is of everybody doing those slides? What's the point? I think one, it's showing this is important. Mm-hmm. You're just, it's not just your deadlines. That's important. You are important. Yeah, you are important. And we want to get to know you. And as a global team, because some of us are pocketed in who we work with, and doing this is allowing me to get to know some of my team members in China and India and other places better. Mm-hmm. And people are being really candid with what they share on those slides. And it's been a good conversation. So we're also encouraging from leadership down, block out time in your calendar, go out to the circle, read slides of people you don't know, mm. and then comment on things you have in common or what you learned or what you're impressed with or... But it's been interesting. People are posting like about their faith journey. They're including things about how they work out like under the body, um, posting about their families. Like there's just a lot of goodness coming out that I don't think would have come out in such a big corporate environment without that type of platform. So this movement, is well, where did the movement come from? The movement, and this is my understanding, is... Ariana Huffington, mm-hmm. you know, when she like passed out and hit her face on her desk or however that story goes. I don't know that story. Oh, yeah. There was something because I had read, I had saw her in an interview and she mentioned something about that. But something about that, she had a moment that made her realize she was exhausted. She was working crazy hours. Overworked. Yeah. Not sleeping right, not eating right. And she founded the Thrive mm-hmm. Movement. And from what I understand is she is the mentor of one of the high leadership in my company. Mm. So they got to talking. We're talking about Thrive. And that's what was the conception of Truly Human for my company. Okay. So you have everyone at work working on these slides Mm -hmm. about their work-life balance. Mm -hmm. Seems a little contradictory. So how are you making sure that they take action in work-life balance? Because one thing to say it, put it on paper. Mm-hmm. But if you're working 12 hours a day, when do you have time for faith and workouts and all of that stuff? And that's what part of it is trying to help people prioritize their work and talk with their client about what's value add. Like your client can ask for a thousand things, but... You need to, one, be proactive and have tenacity to be able to say, if I get this to you by next Wednesday instead of in 20 minutes, does that work for you? Like, when do you need it? And some of it is educating our team to have some of those conversations. Like, a lot of our folks are too intimidated. They just, the client pings them and they do it right now. Maybe the client doesn't need it for a week. 
So some of it is prioritizing. Some of it is being willing to raise your hand if you're over capacity mm-hmm. and ask your lead to help you prioritize or help you figure out a better way to do things. So that's a lot of what we're doing now, like streamlining, looking for efficiencies and trying to spread the work out better because sometimes you have people who are working 50 hours and people who are really working like 30. So how do we really look at workload and help each other out? Because that's, we're trying to get to zero overtime right now. Ah, so there's a numbers goal involved. Well, it's like a, it's a financial and it's a personal goal. Like we realize people are not their best when they're working overtime all the time. Right. And I've worked overtime most of my career. And Mm -hmm. so this is a big change for us. Um, But trying to get people to find that balance because you're more productive. You can be more productive in 40 hours if you're working effectively Mm -hmm. than if you're exhausted and working 60 hours or making mistakes. Mm -hmm. So we're just trying to circle back on that. How do you handle mistakes on your team? I think it's kind of one, it's a growth, like making sure people understand like the accurate way to do it or what mistake they made and why. Um, and some mistakes happen, but needing people to take the time to QA review or if you're not a detail What's QA review to do like peer reviews mm. or have your lead review. Like if you know you're not a detail person. Yeah building the time to have somebody else take a look at it. But then if you're so busy and someone's asking you to review their work and you're overworked, then how do you do that? Yeah, I think then that's coming to your lead to say, we don't have time. And then whether I find somebody from another team that I hear sitting on the bench or... But then what if you spend like so much time trying to find someone else to review your work and then you could have just posted it and maybe you had a mistake. I feel like we're in a place where we're networking better and I feel like it is all about building your network. So get your cadre of people who you can trade stuff and review if you need to. Do you think that that can be taken outside of like your corporate bubble? Oh yeah. I think you've been really good at building your network. Like I think that's something where I look to you as an example of how, especially when you were in Virginia, how intentional you were to build your personal mm-hmm. and your business network. Like what? I don't know. No, really? Like when you lived in Virginia, it just felt like you had, like you knew your marketing go-tos. Oh, yeah. You knew like your graphics go-tos. I just felt like you were really well integrated. Like your book club. Your work mm. stuff, your social events. Yeah, well, I think a lot of that was Atlantic Shores. Mm. Okay. And I was like dual roles there. So I was real estate and I was marketing. So then I was forced into two different industries kind of within the same company. Okay. So I had the benefits of like the marketing events and some marketing stuff. But then I worked with the sales team a lot of the time too, but on the yeah. other side. So you were making those connections and understood their work to a degree. Yeah. And then when I first moved there, I mean, because I worked for the salon for the owner, then that was like one set of clientele that I still keep in contact with some of them. Like some of the girls who worked at the salon, even the ones I had to fire, I still keep in contact. (laughs) Well, that's a good sign if you fired them and they still keep in contact. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Jen, I still want you to do my hair. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's like the, I got thrown into a friend group there too, because they had book club already, which I don't think there's any, Susan is the only surviving member of the original book club that goes regularly. Really? Uh Uh-huh. What about Kate? No. Oh, wow. Not now. Man. But the first book club I went to, it was like, I moved there on a Saturday, I think, Bobby and I arrived, and I went to my first monthly book club on Wednesday, and I cried afterwards. Oh, because? I miss the friends here so much. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah, I didn't like any of the girls. I thought they were too plain and too, oh. like, I miss my friends here, and so I cried all the way home from book club. Oh, no. <laughs> but then it evolved, and we got to a really good spot, because I felt like... 
Well, in the way book club was set up, we could invite people. We just had to invite who got inducted into the book club. <laughs> okay, who got jumped in. And so then once you get some more, like, of your people, like I had friends in there, Kate had, we were mixing it up a little bit. Oh, that's Like better. that was the original group. So, yeah, I think establishing a network is good, but it's hard. It's hard to do. It takes it work. It does take work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I struggle with that sometimes, like where you want to spend your time and making sure you're getting enough like downtime, Mm self-care time. That's hard for me. Yeah, that's why self-care is Sundays for me. I don't deviate from that. Yeah, see, that's good. And Sunday is church for me. And then I'm already out of the house. So sometimes then it's grocery shopping and then it's, yeah, I don't. Yeah, you and Eddie are better, I feel like, with your self-care. That's something I'm learning, finally. Yeah, well, it's new to you. It is a new After raising thing. two kids. Yeah, and helping with grandma and grandpa. It's like I'm in this new season of what do I want? What do you want? I don't know. Like, I'm trying to figure out, like, what brings me joy. Like, and being okay with not always being productive my whole life. Like, you just had to, like, get the to-do list done. So this is a different season for me to just step back from that Mm -hmm. and be okay with, like, reading a book for an hour. Like, I feel like I'm just learning. Hmm. How do you think that has affected how you manage your teams? Yeah, that's where I'm trying. I think that's where I, when I used to be more in driver mode with my team because that, what I was with my own life Mm -hmm. my whole life my home life my work life it was always on an agenda and so much to do um so I'm trying to get better at that and like with my team this week when we did the walking meeting and it was no agenda so it was just hanging out walking getting to know each other a little better And trying to be intentional to make more time that's not Mm agenda-driven to start establishing that rapport since this is a new team for me. And they don't, they don't know me. They don't, we don't have any history together. You have to build trust. We do. In a contentious time, it's a scary time with still being in this reorg and, you know, it's, it's a hard time for people. So what does trust mean to you? Because in branding and relationships, I mean, trust comes up over and over again. Mm, okay. Um, what does trust mean? I It means that somebody has my back. It means I can say what I'm feeling, say what's on my heart, say what's on my mind, and they're not going to hold it against me. We can have a constructive conversation mm-hmm. about it. Um, it means they have my best interest in mind, even if it's saying something I don't want to hear. Mm. that's most important to me like I don't need yes men in my life and I tell my team that too like I really want upward feedback I want to hear when you disagree with me I don't want you chatting with somebody else about it in the break room like come and talk to me um but do you mean it so when you're mm -hmm. confronted with someone who says like hey I think we could have done this better you could have done this better like how do you react to that I appreciate it. Like, sometimes it stings. I won't lie. I mean, we all have our ego. But more and more, and I feel like the older I get, I appreciate it. It's not it's not easy in the moment. And sometimes I'd rather not hear it in the moment. It's like schedule a one-on-one with me later or, you know, mm-hmm. um, not in a room full of people unless it needs an intervention. And then, yeah, do what's needed. But um, I think... Being able to step back and see that I'm going to grow if I'm receptive. Mm -hmm. So I do appreciate it. Like whether I like it, I appreciate it. Whether it's coming from like you or Eddie, whether Mm -hmm. it's from my team. I've had people like have candid conversations and I ask for upward feedback and I mean it. Because otherwise I'm not going to grow and I'm not going to know how I'm being perceived to the team. And that's a disservice to me as well. Mm So how do you um, handle that, like, with your team if they're not used to doing that? It's a process. It's about that establishing trust. They need to know that I mean what I say and that um, I'm willing to grow and evolve 
and change. Mm-hmm. And I think my journey over the last 20 some years and with the amount of different roles that I've had and I lead by example, like I, I have candid conversations with my leaders. I have a leader who I've known and worked with for years, but so many people are intimidated by her and are afraid to give her candid feedback. And so when her and I talk, I let her know, like I have this concern or I observed this and I think here's how people were feeling. Mm -hmm. And she was shocked because nobody else has been willing to give her feedback. But she's been making some tactical changes that I'm hearing people say, wow, this is a different side of her. I've never seen this. And it's like, well, no kidding. If you would have just given well, her Well, no feedback. shit. <laughs> and that was her reaction, too. Like, I could have been making these changes a year ago. Somebody just had the cojones to say something to but me. But where did you get the cojones to say that? I don't know. I don't know if part of it was... I don't know, because growing up, I was I was very intimidated. Well, I, grandma. Yeah, my parents. Yeah, that I didn't go. I didn't appreciate them until I was much older. Appreciate mm-hmm. their style, that assertiveness training. Some of it was being in situations in this big company, where you either speak up, or you're just gonna drown, or you're just gonna hate them and hate yourself because it's gonna be so miserable. I mean, because, well, you had to weigh your alternatives then, right? Like, I speak up, and worst case scenario, they tell me to get out. Mm-hmm. Or I speak up, and they ignore me, mm-hmm. which would be, like, middle case. Yeah. Or best case, I speak up, and they take action. Yes. Yeah, and and it's like, what is your trade-off? Like, you have to weigh the trade-off of speaking up or shutting up. And I feel like I've just learned over time that... For me, all in all, the trade-off is worth it. At least I can look in the mirror and know that I've said my piece. And I've tried to learn to do that, at least at work, in a collaborative way. Like, here's an issue I see and here's a recommendation or here's how I think we can work together to improve things. So how do you, how did you develop that skill? Like, it can be really hard when you're in a meeting with your boss and it's super frustrating to be like... To take a step back and be calculated and present it in a way where all parties at least can listen to it and not just be like, you're wrong or shut down. Right. And I think because over the years I saw so much of that, like I saw so many like dictators Mm -hmm. and for a while I feel like I was one because Mm -hmm. of the work demands and the high expectations and I think I just evolved to a place where I was seeking to understand Mm -hmm. more, um, but willing to, maybe part of it was Brene Brown. I don't know. When I listened to her podcast, when it first came out, her TED Talks about um, vulnerability, Mm -hmm. um, her, that podcast, it was really influencing to me. TED Talks? The TED Talks, yeah. Because willing to be courageous to say your piece Mm -hmm. and that's something I've tried to do through this whole reorg was a good training ground for me because a lot was going wrong and people were bitching about it but they weren't willing to do anything Mm -hmm. about it and I just had no patience for that so the team that I was on though the approach I took with them was trying to empower them we can enact change we can make change happen but you have to be willing to feed me with the information. And then I'm going to these leadership meetings. And if you're willing to document and feed me stuff in trade off, I am willing to come off mute as soon as they ask for questions. Mm. And every week I did, it was at 6 a.m. every Tuesday. And a lot of my peers didn't even go. But did your team feed you questions to give they did they because then I would give them notes from the meeting so it was a reciprocal thing Mm. they saw okay she said she was going to show up at 6 a.m and be vocal and oh my gosh look at these notes she totally was because on my notes I would indicate who raised what issues so you would see on the notes Mary 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 and I would give credit to my team every time like if you guys weren't feeding me these examples and your recommendations Mm -hmm. it's a twofold then it, I wouldn't be able to raise this stuff in the meeting. I wouldn't, I'm not in that level of detail. That's right. not my job. So how do you, 
Why do you think your other peers didn't do that? Because they're lazy? Or because they didn't see the value in it? I think it was more that. I feel like they didn't see the value. I feel like in some teams, they were so discouraged, they couldn't even get themselves into a place to see the value. And I think it comes back to trust. The person who then was leading the transformation, I had worked with her in multiple roles. She Mm -hmm. was my client for a couple of years. Then she switched roles and became my boss. And then we both switched roles. And so I just had had a relationship on and off with her for over six years. Mm. And she's not easy. She's, you know, very candid, very blunt, but she's fair. And I knew that. And so I was willing to to come off mute when others were a little bit they were intimidated they were scared so then they just didn't show up on those calls and in my opinion that wasn't doing a good service to their team who was representing them so is there ever a chance that someone could come off mute in those calls and lose their job because they said something no i mean if it was within reason no I don't think so. Our company, it's really hard to lose your job unless we're in a layoff. Like, it's really hard. They, ha- It's a massive company. They have to go through multiple rounds of proving why you're not doing your role. Mm. Um, they could have gotten snapped at. Which, know. what does that do? You're not even in person to see the reaction. No. And, and unfortunately, some cultures, because it's global, just don't react well to that. And then the North America folks, they just were, they were, they were just intimidated. They were uncomfortable. And I think they weren't bought into the value it would add. Like I really was trying to add value and really make changes, not just be a mouthpiece, but really push and change. And I truly had to be tenacious. Mm-hmm. I would follow. I would follow up weekly on stuff. I would put it on my calendar. Follow up on actions agreed to on the call if they weren't done. And you held them accountable. Mm-hmm. So it's trust, accountability, persistence. Right. I mean, it wasn't all rainbows, right? Like now it's a year later, and I'm still tying back to some things we agreed two months ago. But I'm still pushing. Yeah. And trying. And you got things done in the process. We got a lot done in my team. I felt like grew a lot and they got some really good like acknowledgements from leadership for the role they played. And so, yeah, I think it was good for me and my team. We all grew through it. So what is one piece of advice? We're going to wrap it up here Mm -hmm. that you have for mm, people starting off in their careers. I would say know what your goals are, know what's important to you, know what your boundaries are, where you're willing to give and where you are not, and then have a and intentionally care for yourself well because I didn't I didn't do that and these are things I learned over the years. And if I had gone into all this with all of that, it would have been an easier journey, but All right, Mayor. Solid advice. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Thank you.